And we will be in the book of Micah the next several weeks. Unlike many times, all I have on my sermon schedule is just blank. <laughs> because many times I'll put up a schedule of how long I think I'll be in a book, only to find out that I was way off. My uh, original intentions of being in the book of Mark was for nine months, and I think it ended up being two years. So Mark was 16 chapters, Micah is only seven, so maybe we'll just be in Micah for a year, I don't know. No, I don't think we'll be that long, but... You might want to plan a bookmark in your Bible, as Micah might be kind of hard to find. If you turn to the middle of your Bible, you might be in Psalms or Proverbs, and then after those books, you turn past the major prophets of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Then you'll start seeing Hosea, Amos, Obadiah. Micah is right after that small treasured book of Jonah, and right before Nahum. If you start seeing authors that start with Z's, you've gone too far. Been around Bible teaching, or just understanding your Bible, people will talk about major and minor prophets. And don't let those names confuse you. They're not ranks or pay grades. <laughs> They're generally describing the length of their books. And in my mind, more or less divine revelation from God does not make one major or minor in terms of godliness, better or less. It's just how it happens. Um, we just talked about Mark. He wrote the shortest gospel account, but I think Mark should stay in the Bible. So, before any more preface, I invite you to stand one last time as we read the superscript of Micah's book today, and we're going to try to find ourselves in the world that Micah was in to fully appreciate what's happening in the book of Micah. So, Micah 1.1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morishite, what he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Let's pray. Father, we just read that your word came to Micah. We pray that your word would come to us, that as we dive in deep onto who this man was, what your prophecy was, what who these kings were, what was happening in the time of Micah, that you would reveal to us, as you always do, um, your word that beckons us to repent, that speaks wisdom into our time, that most of all your word became flesh, and that your spirit is with us. Father, would you get me out of the way and say what it is that you desire? <clears throat> we pray that you would grow and mature our hearts in godliness and love towards you and towards one another. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. may be seated. I came to pastor at Woodland Friends, officially called as a pastor a little over five years ago in October of 2013. I moved next door. Near the end of November 2013, same weekend as our community Thanksgiving dinner, then being held at the old uh, schoolhouse. And I came in the middle of quite a tense time for our denomination, the Northwest Yearly Meeting of Friends. Like many denominations, if they haven't faced it yet, I believe they will, the Yearly Meeting was handling the issue of traditional marriage and homosexuality, only it wasn't those issues. It really wasn't those issues at all. 
those were merely symptoms of the deeper issue at stake, and that is the authority of Scripture. In fact, I would hazard a guess that most theological quibbles and most arguments are merely symptoms of the authority of Scripture. Now, granted, I think many who understand this to be so, that the authority of Scripture is often what's being debated under the guise of some hot social button issue, some people will run with that reality, and then they will become very religious, cold, and callous. <laughs> As in, I'm going with God's word, you dirty, rotten sinner, for even wasting time and breath on this. Jesus spent three years with guys who even at Jesus' death and resurrection were still wrestling with the authority of who Jesus was. Jesus was and is very gracious and patient. But there were times whenever I was visiting the yearly meeting, usually at annual sessions, where I felt so emotionally exhausted. And furthermore, I felt that the emotional exhaustion was pointless for me to have. Because I felt like here were all these people with Bibles in their hands and they were having heated discussions about an issue that God had clearly spoken on. And the fact, and that fact I felt was being completely ignored. And it made for me personally the entire conversation, the entire stressful dilemma that much more pointless and meaningless is why are we even gathering to discuss something that's been decided on? By God's word. Because somebody else has a better idea? <laughs> Did God not weigh with, with you and me and our fine superb counsel on these matters before he spoke? Was he not aware of our 21st century and advances in science when he spoke about this moral issue? And I'm not saying that I handled every conversation, nor did I have or do I have the right heart and the entire ordeal. I grew more impatient than God obviously was. <laughs> I firmly believe that the yearly meeting has generally made some right decisions, and I trust our superintendent and leadership at large that the yearly meeting is going the right direction. But you and I know that this isn't the only issue, nor is church the only place where it seems that there are voices whining to be heard, and snarky comments and political platforms that are just loaded with angst and resentment that I have the truth and you don't. Because we often get angry with what we see. Whether it be so-called church leaders preaching false doctrine, political leaders ripping people off, social elites dehumanizing other people, or injustice going unchecked, people are like a bunch of dog-chasing cars trying to find truth, trying to find a remedy, trying to find an answer. And the sad thing is, is we all have access to the truth. See, we live in a privileged age, age post-resurrection of Jesus where God's presence is open for all. The light of the world is here. It's for every person. And in the 21st century, I have a hundred of Bibles at my fingertips through my phone, let alone the massive collection I have in my office. We have the Word of God so accessible, and it's so underused, underappreciated, ignored, and in fact sometimes angrily rejected. 
because we all apparently have more wisdom stored away in our three-pound fallen brains than the God of the universe. The world, for Micah, is in shambles. It's shaky at best. He's on rocky, faltering ground. The leaders and the kingdoms and the kings of his day, though they be God's chosen people, they happen to be the most sinful. God doesn't seem to be present in his temple, and justice takes place more than justice does. Hatred, oppression, and schism is the norm, where love, generosity, and unity should be. But Micah has guts, because Micah has God. He opens his book this way, the word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morishite. And Micah has guts. Because the law says this in Deuteronomy 18, verses 20-22, Moses says, well God says through Moses, that the prophet who dares to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. You may say to yourself, how can we recognize a message the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Out of the gate, Micah says, The very word of the Lord, Yahweh, came to me. One of the things I noted was interesting was, example, over in Amos, four books back in your Bible, I wonder if Amos was just a little resistant covering his tracks, a bit hesitant at the beginning of his book, so he just writes, the words of Amos, <laughs> not the word of the Lord. <laughs> I'm not saying that Amos wasn't speaking for the Lord, he was. But Micah, on the other hand, has no qualms. He certainly felt the voice of the Lord speak to him, and that is what he's about to speak to the people. You see, the word didn't originate within Micah. The word didn't spring up from creative juices flowing at midnight when he couldn't sleep. It didn't hit him after a stiff drink. Rather, the word of the Lord that came is a statement that the invisible God is becoming audible through the spoken word of Micah. It's interesting, too, that Micah takes another different route from the other prophets and we get little to no information about who he is, other than he is a Morishite. That is, most of you are woodlanders. Micah is a Morishite. But as a citizen, likely from a, or from a rural suburb of a bigger city called Gath, Morisheth, often being called Morisheth Gath, this was about 24 miles southwest of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And that's all we get. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, they all give a little bit more about biographical background to how they were called, who they are. But Micah, we know where he's from, but then listen to this. He says, the word of Yahweh came to him, a citizen of Morasheth, and it's about what he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem. He's gutsy. He doesn't have much to say to anyone, only that he's claiming to have the very voice of God and has something to say to the two powerhouses, the two capitals in Samaria and Jerusalem, the northern capital and the southern capital. Like, and I have a message for the White House. 
the old, I like Old Testament books because I feel like they're often overlooked and misunderstood. So I like to look at them and understand them, especially the minor prophets. Now, I know a few of you might be nerdy like me, but be honest, how many of you never open up to the minor prophets, especially when, except for whenever you're on a Bible through the year plan, and honestly, you look forward to Old Testament prophets about as much as Leviticus. I could be wrong, but the reason being, you and I don't look forward to these books is because we have no historical context. People sometimes like looking at handwritten letters from, you know, George Washington to his wife Martha or John Adams to Abigail because we do know a little bit about these presidents and their roles and the formation of the nation and you're part of that nation that they founded and if you've been to school, you've studied some history, you can look at these letters and have a sense of familiarity, maybe discern the majority of most of the things they're talking about. But you open up the prophecy, it's like reading a letter from a tribal king to a group of people in the remote tribes of Africa concerning warring tribes, and what does this have to do with the price of rice in China, as Christie would say. You and I are part of the spiritual nation that the prophet Micah is writing to. We are spiritual descendants who need the word of God as much as Samaria and Jerusalem did. We worship the very God who spoke into human history through Micah. And I don't know about you, but the more I love and learn about our King Jesus, our God, the more I want to be aware and filled up on and familiar with every single thing he has spoken. Micah is near the end of the northern kingdom's existence. I was reading all my introductions to Micah and my study Bibles and my commentaries and they were giving me all these names and dates and wars I didn't care about. And I said, apparently I'm dense, because I need to go back further to get context. So we have Moses <laughs> leading the Israelites out of Egypt. That's upwards of 13 to 1500 B.C. There's debate about that date. Moses passes the proverbial baton to Joshua, who conquers the promised land, basically setting the framework for Israel. But even before Israel is on the map, we are studying the time of the judges in Dean's class. And these tribes of Israel are warring with other people and one another. They're rambunctious. There's military leaders and whatnot rise up from time to time to deliver this ever-changing ragtag group of Israelites. This goes on for hundreds of years until the last judge, Samuel, shows up. And Israel says, now this is Kevin's quicker paraphrase, but Israel says, you know what? We're tired of judges. We want a king. We want something physical to look at that we can see in the face. We want a king like the rest of the world. You can look at 1 Samuel 8 later and then correct me. In any case, Samuel anoints David, excuse me, Samuel anoints Saul, the first king of Israel, who goes power hungry. And then God appoints David, who was really forever the measuring rod, the frame of reference for Israel. This is the best king ever. David and his son Solomon set up the golden years of Israel. If they allowed democracy back then, David and Solomon are the proverbial FDRs. We want four terms, as long as we can have it. And then, by the end of Solomon's reign, he has a servant and a son who want to take the throne. 
So Israel splits. That's 931 B.C. And most people call the northern kingdom Israel because the northern kingdom had ten tribes, but they didn't have Jerusalem. And that's important because Jerusalem is where the temple is and where God is to be worshipped. And so the first northern king, he gets special and very convenient revelation and says, you know what, God actually wants to be worshipped as golden calves here in towns located in the northern kingdom. And I'm sounding sarcastic because the Bible blatantly reveals that that's idolatry. And you can read the better version of that story in 1 Kings 12. Generally speaking, the northern kingdom had bad kings. And the southern kingdom, called Judah because of the two tribes that make up the southern kingdom, Judah is one of them, but generally speaking, they still have bad kings, just not as much. And it's near the end of the northern kingdom's existence, which was 922 to 722 B.C. That's the 200 years of the northern kingdom existence. And it's near the end that Micah is writing. A foreign powerhouse called Assyria is about to come and take Israel captive. We'll talk about that in a future sermon. And so Micah narrows down the time of his ministry in the era of the divided kingdoms under three kings in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That is the southern kingdom kings still around when the northern kingdom is taken captive. By these kings, the maximum time of Micah's ministry could have been up to 53 years, and the minimum time could have been 20 years, saying, oh, he did one year in the first king and one year in the last king. You can read about these kings in your Bible, but I want to Touch on, them, touch on them a little bit. Jotham, we're told in 2 Chronicles 27, verse 2, he did what was right in the Lord's sight, as his father Uzziah had done. And it goes on to say a little bit more about his life. You get a whole whopping nine verses in 2 Chronicles 27. Ahaz, we're given a little bit longer summation of his life, 27 verses, and to kind of give you a glimpse of this guy, we hear at the beginning in 2 Chronicles 28, that Ahaz did not do what was right in the Lord's sight, like his ancestor David, for he, that is Ahaz, walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made cast images of the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire, imitating the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had disposed, dispossessed before the Israelites. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills and every, under every green tree. This man in Judah is fighting with the northern tribe, the Israelites. He's enslaving them. He's at war with other nations. But really telling is near the end of Second Chronicles 28, we read, At the time of his distress, King Ahaz himself became more unfaithful to the Lord. He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. He said, Since the gods of the kings of Aram are helping them, I will sacrifice to them so that they will help me. But they were the downfall of him and all of Israel. Then Ahaz gathered up the utensils of God's temple, cut them into pieces, shut the doors of the Lord's temple, and made himself altars on every street corner in Jerusalem. He made high places in every city of Judah to offer incense to other gods, and he provoked the Lord, the God of his ancestors. Micah's ministry started before this guy and ended after this guy. I wonder if there might be a reason that the duration of his entire reign, Micah's ministry, 
was happening. Enslaving other nations, enslaving their brothers in the northern kingdom. After the evil king Ahaz, we have Hezekiah. And to show you what kind of business this guy means, 2 Chronicles 29 opens this way in verses 2 through 6. He, that is Hezekiah, did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. Now listen to this. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the Lord's temple and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the eastern public squares. He said to them, Hear me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of Yahweh, the God of your ancestors. Remove everything impure from the holy place, for our fathers were unfaithful and did what is evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They abandoned him, turned their faces away from the Lord's tabernacle, and turned their backs on him. First year, first month, first things first, Hezekiah says, we're making sure our worship to God is done right. Cleaning up Israel. You could say he's making Israel great again. Did Micah have anything to do with this? Here's what we do know. Micah is talked about in the book of Jeremiah. Actually, no. Before we go to Jeremiah, let me say that there, I think there's another reason people have trouble reading the prophets. And in the fact, I think, is because there's a lot of doom and gloom in them, right? Repent, your city's going to be demolished, you'll be taken as captive, the day of wrath is coming. It's a bit harder on the ears than come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Well, the people hearing the prophets, when they were prophesying, would agree with you and me. It's hard on the ears. Stephen, what we know as the first martyr in the book of Acts, chapter 7, says to the religious leaders of his day, Acts 7, verse 51, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, so do you. What of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Sometimes God's word is painful because it's true. It exposes the, us, it exposes the sin of the people. And Micah and the prophets are speaking in a time and place under kings like Ahab, where so much sin and corruption is taking place. And thanks be to God, we serve a righteous and just God, not one who just winks at sin. There is punishment and wrath to be had for those who go on sinning and never repent. And I bring up all this, the fact that prophets were not tasty to the ears of their original hearers as they are now, because I was alluding to the fact that after evil king Ahab, comes a reformer like Hezekiah, and I asked, did Micah have anything to do with this? Jeremiah is a prophet who comes 200 years after Micah in a similar setting, only this time it's not the northern kingdom that's being captured, since it already is captured, but Jeremiah is having to be God's mouthpiece um, to say that the southern kingdom is going to be now taken. And Jeremiah or excuse me, people and the priests and the prophets are not liking that so much that they see Jeremiah and they say, you're a false prophet, right? They do Deuteronomy 18 on him before his words even have a chance to find fulfillment or not. And they say, we don't believe you're speaking for Yahweh. You, you can't be. 
But finally, someone stands up and seeks to spare Jeremiah from dying a martyr's death, and he quotes Micah to do so. Jeremiah 26, verses 16 through 19 says, Then the officials and all the people told the priests and the prophets, This man, being Jeremiah, doesn't deserve the death sentence, for he has spoken to us in the name of Yahweh our God. Some of the elders of the land stood up and said to all the assembled people, Micah the Morishite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, This is what the Lord of hosts says. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins. And the Temple Mount, the forested hill. Now that's not very pleasant words from the Lord, right? <laughs> Where is come to me all who are weary? Where is the Lord is my shepherd? But Micah preached judgment. He preached hard truth. And the elders continue about Micah while pleading for Jeremiah's life. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all the people of Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and plead for the Lord's favor? And did not the Lord relent concerning the disaster he had pronounced against him? We are about to bring great harm on ourselves. That is, if they were about to kill Jeremiah, the great prophet. Micah's ministry was credited to Hezekiah's reform. It makes me wonder that as Hezekiah sees the evil kingdom of his dad Ahaz and hears of a prophet named Micah, and I wonder if he's convicted. He has to make a decision here. Am I going to keep up the kingdom of my father? Or will I rule and reign and bring God the Father's kingdom around to him again? Will I listen to what Micah has to say because I believe that's what God is saying? Because Micah had guts. He's a simple Morishite, but he hears God's word. He unashamedly says, God's the one who's going to speak. Micah has the audacity to be the vessel for God's word for none other than the powerhouse capitals itself, Samaria, capital of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, capital of the southern kingdom. And the elders in Jeremiah's time would tell us that the nation takes a change for the better because God's word was met with repentant hearts. Reminds me of the audacity of a greater Micah. You see, the gospel tells us that instead of the word of God coming to someone, the word becomes flesh in the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus has no fall, but at the right time, instead of preaching a word of rebuke to the powerhouses, he marches to the temple itself. Like that's the proverbial White House and every church denominational office ever, all wrapped up into one building. And Jesus goes there and topples over tables, runs out the unjust and corrupt and hypocritical leaders himself with a whip. I wonder if Jesus was speaking loud and clear. I want you to see that at the beginning of the book of Micah, that God is speaking here. And because of Micah's faithful ministry through doom and gloom and blunt confrontational calls of repentance that a kingdom turned around. But I want you to see that Jesus comes and is the word in the flesh, and instead of merely turning the kingdom around for a time, he brings with him a new kingdom that lasts forever, and its effects are still going out into the world. And sometimes I wonder if we look to the Ahazes of our time, or the corruption of our time, and we get discouraged. Sometimes I get discouraged by the Ahazes and the hypocrisy and the corruption and the filthiness out there, but sometimes... I get tired of seeing Ahaz in the mirror. You see, Micah opens his mouth, but God Almighty speaks to the events of Micah's time. 
God Almighty speaks and reveals that God is familiar, intensely familiar with everything that Israel and Judah are doing. Everything that they are going through from oppressive leaders to hypocritical religious folk to injustices to evil kings. And God, though God merely speaks, his audible, invisible word turns hearts of flesh and blood into life. Because all it took to make them in the beginning was God's word. Jesus, the word in the flesh, comes and tells us that he is beyond familiar, beyond sympathetic, but has experienced the same trials and temptations that you and I experience. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be distressed, to be depressed, to be oppressed, to be weary, to see the corruption even where God should be worshipped and purity should be the norm. And friends, God in the flesh knows exactly how it feels to suffer and be vulnerable. Whether it be physical like Jesus, or audible and verbal like the word through Micah, God has been speaking for a long time. And he gives us his word in these 66 books. He gives us his Spirit, and I want to tell you right now, he's intimately familiar with everything that you are going through. Psalm 139, David writes, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my days before a word is on my tongue. You know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This extraordinary knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. And friends, that God searches and knows you, your every action, your every thought, your travels and resting. He is aware of all your ways. He knows what you're going to say tomorrow, let alone from a year from now, which helps me as a pastor. If he could just tell me what words. <laughs> he knows all your ways. And his spirit is able to speak to you. His word is always in reach. His word is for kings and kingdoms of old and of now, but his word is for you and me every day. I want you to take hope today that the invisible God has written visible words for you and me. I want you to take excitement to study them and know them and to be filled by them to know that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word out of the mouth of God. So I wonder if you're starving yourself. You can eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snacks every day, but fail to pick up the word of God and feast on it. Then you are starving yourself. His word is to be desired more than food, so you are starving yourself in a more profound way than you were if you failed to eat food. His word can change Israel around, has it changed you around? His word can turn the hearts of kings to be generous to their citizens and expect reform and desire holiness. Has his word changed your heart? His word brought, brings up love for him and love for others. Has his word put the hunger for holiness in your heart? Micah was gutsy to allow the word of God come forth from his mouth when it was a word for none other than the capitals of a broken, would-be, should-be, holy kingdom. 
Are you gutsy enough to submit to the word of God no matter what he desires of you and the implications it has for those around you? Because God is speaking here. Whose voice can be more desirable than God Almighty? Whose words have more credibility in your heart than God? Whose wisdom would you savor more in any situation than God's? Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, another writer in the Bible once said, there's nothing new under the sun. All it takes is a little bit of study and historical context to find out that's true. Micah lived in a world that may have looked drastically different, but the feelings are the same. The angst, the oppression, the injustice, evil leaders, evil kingdom centers everywhere, including in the earth. Father, I pray that as we study the word of Micah, that you would continue to use it as bread to feed us. And Father, I pray that today, as we walk away, you would have a sincere, sincerely deep hunger for the Lord. That we would know man does not live on bread alone, that as Paul says, physical exercise is good, but spiritual exercise is better. Another book of paraphrase God. Father, I pray that whether it be for the new year or just simple conviction, that we would be a people who commit to reading your word, memorizing your word, not because we want to check it off, because we're good religious people, but because we sincerely believe that it is bread for us each and every day. And that oftentimes you give us the right verses at the right times in our experiences. But Father, we thank you. We thank you that we live in such a privileged age with access to your word in so many ways and study resources that are free. And Father, you've given us a privileged time to live in, but it's only a privilege if we make use of it. Father, we thank you, we love you, we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.